Last week in our youth group lesson, we talked about the idea of camouflage. And I, I tried to find some images of people who were pretty well hidden while wearing camouflage. But I came across something that I thought was a little bit more interesting that I wanted to use this morning. It's different animals that are really well hidden. Like they can be so well hidden that it's hard to see them in just a passing glance. And so I got together eight pictures of these animals to see if we can find them, which I'm sure that you can because you guys are smart, you, you can do this. So uh, we're going to try something too. I'm going to try and circle them as we do this. So this is going to be this technology. It's going to be cool. <laughs> All right, here's the first one. There's a chameleon in here. Can you see the chameleon? Okay, you guys can all see the chameleon, which is right here. Ooh. Huh? Huh? Yeah. This is an easy one. Stick insect, walking stick kind of thing. Yeah. Do I need to circle the walking stick? I'm going to do it anyway because it's fun. (laughs) All right. This one. These are leaf-littered toad. Leaf-littered toad, you see? Do you see all three? Because there are three. There's one there, there's one there, and then there's one over here. These were my favorite because I saw this and I was like, they look just like a leaf. That's so cool. That's so cool. All right, here's uh, this one I thought was pretty easy. It's a pygmy seahorse. Yeah, just that little bit there. That was a shaky, shaky one. Telstrator is not my thing. Okay, this is a uh, leaf-tailed gecko. That's pretty easy to see, but it's there. Pretty wild. This is a great horned owl. See the owl right there in the middle? There's a, there's a gray tree frog in this picture. This one I thought was the harder one to see. Anybody, anybody see it? Okay, guys, we got people to see it. Good job, good job, good job. It's right somewhere around here. It's very small on my screen. Oh, I got it. Okay, last one. It's the worst one. Right in here. Okay, it's got, it's got eight legs. It is a wraparound spider. And yet again, it just tells me that I'm going to stay indoors for the rest of my life. <laughs> Because it's a, it's a spider that you can't see. Spiders that you can see are pretty bad. <laughs> I find it pretty amazing at how closely, or, you know, how these animals, like, they so closely match their surroundings, a lot of them. Sometimes though, that's how we Christians are as well, right? Like, we stand, or we, we're so closely, we match our surroundings that we end up not standing out from them. We look like everything and everybody else around us. We're not distinctive. But as followers of Jesus, we should be distinctive. We're in the middle of this series on the Apostle Paul's small letter to a young pastor named Titus. Titus is on the Greek island of Crete, and he's helping build up the newly formed churches on this island. Paul's instructing Titus on a number of things related to this task. We saw how he instructed Titus on finding proper and godly leadership for the churches, the elders, and how their character should be. 
for the past few weeks. We've been in a section in where Paul's been giving Titus these instructions on how, we sh- how he should teach uh, older men and older women and how they and he should teach younger men and women. And then in verses 9 and 10, his instructions were uh, toward Christian slaves. These practical instructions, they're truly focused on living lives of distinction. This week, we're going to look at how Christians are able to live these lives of distinction, lives that stand out from the rest of the world. And what he talks about is truly the foundation for all of Christian living. What Paul talks about here in this passage that we're going to read, what, what Tom read for us, it's the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Titus chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 11 through 14 this morning. There's just so much in these four verses that is going to help us really focus on the right things. And we're going to start in verse 11, where it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So Paul starts this verse with that little three-letter word, for. It connects this part of the passage to the previous things that he was talking about, the teaching of the different age groups. Like we said, this is the foundation for this teaching. This, this stuff right here is the foundation. And so we have the grace of God that has appeared. This is what makes Christianity markedly different than most, if not all, other religions. It's God's grace. Other religions, they want to give you something to do. They want you to earn your place, to earn God's favor. This is continually what Paul has been fighting against in many of his churches that he's planted. False teachers would come behind him and would teach new believers that there was more that had to be done before you could truly be a Christian. But what Paul teaches and what the truth is, is that God's grace, you can't earn it. It's grace. It's a gift. As one commentator puts it, God's grace toward us is based solely on his love and our total inability to meet God's standards. We're not able to meet God's standards, but what are those standards? Well, in Leviticus 19.2, he says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or you can look at how Jesus kind of words this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.48. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as God is perfect. Well, if that seems like an unreachable goal, it is. Maybe you start to think to yourself, though, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. I do good things. Shouldn't that be enough? That's where we start measuring things by our standards of what's good, not by God's standard. God's standard is perfection, which, if we're honest, we fall woefully short of. None of us are perfect. But that's exactly why we need God's grace and why it's such an amazing thing. What, according to the passage, does God's grace give? For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. It offers salvation. Our sinfulness, it separates us from God, and we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It's from Romans 3.23. Anybody that's memorized verses in Awana would know that one. But we don't always talk about verse 24, which says that, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We are saved by God's grace through the redemption found in the coming of his son, Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross on our behalf. He took the sins, took our sins to the cross. That leads us to the last little thing in this verse. 
It says the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This grace, it's available to everybody. No matter who you are, the salvation offered by the grace of God through the work of Jesus, it's available to you. In that day, that was something pretty amazing about Christianity. It didn't matter who you were, whether you're Jew or Gentile, man or woman, slave or free, you could find salvation in Jesus. But it's only found through Jesus. That's one of the arguments that you still hear against Christianity, that it's an exclusive religion. People don't like it when you say that there's only one way to God. You know what? I mean, they're they're right. It is an exclusive religion, but even still, it is one of the most inclusive religions in that it is open to everyone. Salvation is offered to all people. Now that often is where people feel like the gospel ends. When we talk about the gospel, like you get saved, now what? You know, now I try my hardest and I do it on my own. We give you tips and tricks and you know, steps or whatever to, to live your life better. But the gospel doesn't end at salvation. It'll, it starts there. Thomas Lee writes that Paul didn't limit the operation of God's grace toward Christians to justification in the restricted legal sense of the conversion experience. Rather, throughout his letters, Paul indicated that God's grace continues to operate in the sanctification process of the Christian's life. We need God's grace to work in our lives to help us grow in sanctification or or holiness, being set apart by God. So with that in mind, we want to move to the next verse where Paul talks about Christian living. Before we get into that, though, can you remember who your favorite teacher was? Think back to when you were in school, whether it was recently or a while ago. But who was the teacher who was your absolute favorite that you, you loved to have? You know, did you find that you, know, you enjoyed learning more when you had a teacher that you, you liked? When I was at IU, my favorite professor was a man named Claude Cookman. He was a professor in the journalism school. And I, I don't think I was alone in saying that he was my favorite. A lot of students loved this man. Claude, he was unique that... You know, because he really loved his students. My first class, it was a general lecture with probably 125, 150 students. And and he took the time to learn and to remember everybody's name in that classroom, which was wild. It's still wild to me. Like, I know a lot of names, but not that many. For For the two years that I was at IU finishing up my degree, every semester I took a class from him. Because I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning from him. Even though we had wildly different worldviews on things. But I liked learning from him. I think that when you have a teacher who you really like, who's really good at what they do, who's, who's invested in you and interested in you, you get more interested and engaged in learning, right? And that's what makes Paul, what makes what Paul says here pretty neat, I think. Because the first thing that we see in this passage is that it's God's grace that is teaching us the ways of Christian living. Verse 12 says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The it points back to the previous verse and it's talking about the grace of God. It's that grace that teaches us to say no to certain things and yes to other things. 
Who could truly be a better teacher than God? Who has immense interest in you? Who loves you? Who knows everything about you? The word teaches here, it's not just simply to teach, but as one commentator writes, it's the sort of education, guidance, and even discipline that's associated with parental oversight or pastoral leadership or God's benevolent, if sometimes painful, supervision. As we see here, there are two sides to the Christian living, which Paul talks about. There's a negative and a positive. And so let's look at the negative first, because that's how Paul starts. He says that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Ungodliness is when we do things that are not done for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That word is used six times in the New Testament, ungodliness. Used six times. It's also translated as godlessness. In the first chapter of his letter to the Romans, Paul talks about God's wrath coming because of ungodly people. Romans 1, 18 and 19 says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. He writes that they didn't glorify God. They didn't give thanks to him. And then in verse 24, he continues. He says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The ungodly, they worshiped, they served anything other than God. Near the end of the passage, in Romans, Paul talks about what, what was going to become of these people when they practiced ungodliness. Verse 29 says they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That is obviously not a very flattering image, and that is not a list that most people would be proud to be on. But many are, even today. And we live in such a culture today. Like, you read this list, and you can see each of these things in our world. But that's not how it has to be. It's not how it should be. That's the first negative area of Christian living, ungodliness. The second that he talks about is worldly passions. Having passion for something can be good. But you have to have passion for the right things. What are you passionate about? We can be passionate about so many different things, but of course, some are better than others. What Paul is warning us against here is having that worldly passion, having that passion for the things of this world over the things of God. As the Apostle John wrote in one of his letters, 1 John 2.16, he says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Worldly passions include these things. 
It's another way that we could translate the word passions. It could also be translated as lust. The lust of the flesh, sexual temptation, sexual immorality, things that Paul lists in a few places. Or the lust of the eyes, trying to find pleasures in everything that we can see. Being captivated by the look of something without knowing its real value. The forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was an example of this because it was pleasing to the eye. In the book of Joshua, Achan coveted a beautiful robe and a whole lot of silver and gold after conquering. And the Israelites, God told them not to plunder the city that they had conquered, and yet he did. David left after Bathsheba after seeing her from the rooftop. Then there's that third worldly passion that John talks about. It's the pride of life. Most commentators speak of this as boasting in what one has or what one does. Having an arrogance and a desire to shine or outshine others. And these three examples, and probably a whole lot more, are what Paul's warning against when he speaks of worldly passions. James, in his letter, puts it in pretty grave terms. James 4.4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That shows you the danger of being consumed by this world. You become an enemy of God. But of course, Paul doesn't only teach about the negative side of Christian living. He also teaches us about the positive side. Titus 2.12 again, he teaches us to say no to ungodliness and world passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So three positive ways here that we should live that the grace of God teaches us. First is to live self-controlled lives. We've already spoken about that a number of times in this sermon series, being self-controlled. But as a reminder, it's the idea of being sober-minded or moderate or prudent. It is not giving in to the worldly passions when you're tempted by them, which, of course, we will be tempted by them, whether it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, having prideful living. But through the grace of God, you'll be able to stand up from under those temptations. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. You will be tempted, but God will provide you the way out so you can live self-controlled lives. This area of living that Paul talks about, it, it, it deals with us. It deals with ourself. But the next one is to live upright lives, and that focuses on how we relate with others. How we relate to others is one of our best opportunities to witness for Jesus. It is important to tell others about Jesus. And I, I mean, like, this is the message that is life-saving for people. But it's also important not to undermine the message with our actions if they don't match what we're saying. That can ruin our witness for the gospel. So how should we relate to others? It's in love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he answered by saying that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second one is right up there. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. He also said in John, a new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you. The response that you have, not just to those whom you know you're close to and you love, like, that's the easy one. 
But it's also to those who, you know, maybe you're indifferent to. Maybe you don't like them at all. But your response should still be love. Paul writes in Romans 12, 17, he says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that's a passage that we all need to remember different times in our lives. We want to be upright when we're dealing with others, but we also want to be godly. Being godly, it really focuses on our relationship with God himself. Everything that we do in, with our lives, is, it's a reflection of our relationship with him. When we trust him fully, we start to live in such a way. We want to live lives that are pleasing to him. And so in everything that we do, we try and do it for God's glory, not ours. Just like it says in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever we do, whether we're at work, whether we're at school, whether we're at home, or maybe we're doing some mundane thing like standing in line at the grocery store, we're interacting with somebody who may not be having the best day, or, or you know, the restaurant got your order wrong, Whatever we do, we do it for God and his glory. Tim Keller writes about this list that we've been talking about, the negative, the positive ways of Christian living. And as he writes, he asks his readers to think for a moment all the ways you can say no to ungodly behavior. You can say no because I'll look bad. No because I'll be excluded from the social circles I want to belong to. No, because then God will not give me health, wealth, and happiness. Or no, because God will send me to hell. Or no, because I'll hate myself in the morning and lose my self-respect. And Keller continues, he says, Virtually all of these incentives use self-centered impulses of the heart to force compliance to external rules. But they have very little to do, or they, they do very little to change the heart itself. The motive behind them is not love for God. See, we can try and change the way we're living. We can try and put as many things in place to do those three positives and stay away from the two negatives of ways of Christian living. We can do all those things in our own power all we want, but if we're doing that with wrong motives or outside God's power, then it's never going to work. But as his followers, as his children, God in his grace will change us. Author Jared Wilson writes, It is God who works in us to will and to work. It's not that we don't expend any energy. It's simply that the energy comes from God's Spirit. It's not we who are living, but Christ who is living in us. 
This in itself is good news. If you're a Christian, you will obey. The Spirit of God living inside us ensures it. We will bear good fruit. It doesn't make us sinless, but it does make us sure of spiritual growth, and it does make us more conscious of and convicted over our sin. And that leads us into the last area that Paul talks about in our passage. And that's the hope that we have as Christians. Verses 13 and 14 back in Titus 2. The grace of God teaches us these things. That, and, and it teaches us while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The gospel is not only for our salvation, it's not only for our sanctification, but it also gives us our future hope. We know that Jesus will return. And while we're not to be idle during that time, it's still something that we need to remember and keep near the front of our minds. We continue to look for Christ's return. Like Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, for the, sorry, 4.16, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with, a trumpet call, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And therefore, encourage one another with these words. We do not sit idly as we wait. We work as he's told us to do. We're loving one another. We're loving our neighbors. We're making disciples. And we do this because we are his. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's an awful lot in these four little verses. But the thing we need to focus on is that through God's grace, we have been saved. It is through God's grace that we learn how to live a Christian life. And it is God's grace which continues to give us hope for the future as we await Jesus' return. I want to close with a story from World War II. In July 1941, at the Auschwitz prisoner camp, ten prisoners had been selected to be killed by the Germans after I think there was an escape attempt. But among them was a, a man, and he was a sergeant, and uh, I, I practice this, but I think it's a Polish name, so it, bear with me, but it's Franciszek Gajanicek. And he began to plead for his life because he had a wife and children and he wanted to see them again. It was then that there was a Franciscan priest named Maximilian Kolbe who stepped forward and he offered to take the man's place. Kolbe told the guards that he was alone in the world and would be willing to die in place of the sergeant. And the Germans accepted his request. Gajanicek survived the war, and for the rest of his life, he 
expressed his thankfulness for the gift of life that he received because of Colby's sacrifice. We have a Savior who's taken our place. We were condemned to die, and yet because of his work, we can live. He died a horrific death so that we might have life. And then he conquered death so that we might have life with him for eternity. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we, we take time now in, in our service as, as in taking communion, but we're, we're remembering the sacrifice that he made, I pray that we would continue to commit our lives to him as we seek to stand out, not to blend in with the rest of the world, and to live lives of distinction. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is my prayer, that we would live lives of distinction. Live lives for you. As we, as we continue to live in the ways that, that Paul talks about in this letter, we know that we'll stand out from the world because that is not how the world lives. But it is so different. And, and Lord, we know that we can only do this in your power because we are surrounded by everything that is against you. And so help us, Lord, to rest in your power, to live in that, and to live lives of distinction. Father, as we come around the table for communion, we remember the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, that the body broken, that was symbolized by the bread, the blood that was spilled symbolized by the cup. So Lord, we, we take this as a reminder every week just to remember the sacrifice that you made and the amazing grace that drove that. Father, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.